Hello, world, and welcome to another fun, fun episode of Here's a Guy. Um, I am Alex. I'm coming to you here live from St. Louis, and I am joined by my usual cast of characters, the first of which being my brother, Cody, coming to us from Illinois. Cody, how are you? Uh, I am very stressed. Uh, someone please send me liquor and whatever kind of calm down drugs you've got, because this is the part of the year where my job gets really, really stressful. We are gearing up for some, uh, you know, I, I've got a lot to do at the moment, and we're also having to, uh, you know, deal with our normal fun projects like this one. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm just sliding uh, slowly down the uh, slope to insanity. How are you guys? <laughs> so, yeah, sounds great. Uh, I'm also joined by Jack John in Indianapolis. Uh, Jack John, how are you? Are you any better than uh, that? I'm, I'm actually doing really good. I have no foreseeable stressors on my calendar. Uh, it's my adoptiversary of my pet pancake that I got on sale. Uh, so I'm doing now, great. Now, to be clear, that is your pet cat named Pancake and not a pet pancake. Yes, yes. Which, I mean, the the resemblance is striking. If you as... kept a pancake for a year, <laughs> I would be, first of all, surprised that a pancake like lasted an entire year. I, I actually, so this is funny. I remember the origin story of pancakes because... Yeah. The last time I went to visit you in Indianapolis, uh, you and Laura had just moved to your new house and Potato was adjusting nicely. Uh, she and I bonded quite a bit that weekend, but you were saying, hey, yeah, we think we're, we think we might get another cat. And you were just kind of looking through the uh, adoptions available on the the uh, shelter you guys used. And you, uh, you're, you were immediately, uh, your attention was grabbed by that little uh, calico bundle of joy. And... Um, you were like, hey, I, th I think we got one. Yeah. Also, her name's Pancakes. How cool is that? <laughs> it, and you, I remember you put the call in before we went to lunch, and literally on the way out as we were leaving, you got a call back. Right. And Laura was so worried that we weren't going to get the cat. Um, I was going like, to say, two Laura, days later. Laura, who, by the way, had never heard of this cat until about an hour beforehand... <laughs> And at first she was like, I don't know. And by the time lunch was over, she's like, I need this fucking cat. We need to get this cat. If we don't get this cat, something terrible is going to happen. But all's well that ends well because yes. uh, you completed your set of latkes. Yes, we, we have potato pancakes. Um, and it's been a hell of a year. But yeah, the exact opposite of Cody's stress. I just have cats that I enjoy being around. That is, um... Yeah, that wait, is... A, wait, a, wait about seven months, buddy. We'll see who's more stressed. Yeah, I'll, I'll have. It's gonna Laura... come. Back, it's gonna come back for you big time. Yeah, I, I'm sure taking care of the baby will be exactly the same as taking care of the cats. I, I imagine you just put some like sand in a corner. It shits there and it comes back out later, and it just lays next to you and watches TV. I, I can dispel one myth for you right now. They do not always land on their feet. Shit. Um. Cats do. Babies do not. Yeah. Uh, babies, uh, yeah. in fact, tend to land on their heads because their yeah. heads are the heaviest parts of their bodies at that point. It may shock you to know that I was dropped as a child. Now, yeah, I, no, we know you were dropped as an adult too. <laughs> when when I was very little, and this was this was so long ago, Cody, I don't even think you would be able to remember this, but um, our our uncle from Arizona. Um, was in town, and we went to the uh, the wonderful and, and RIP to this location, the wonderful Campsville Inn in Campsville, 
Illinois. Oh, yeah. Wonderful, wonderful yeah, little seafood place that was right along the Illinois River. It flooded about once per year. Um, and whatever whatever grandfather agreement they had to uh, where the local government and insurance allowed them to still be there, I guess, ran out. Um, and they're no longer there. But we always love to go there. And um, uh, when I was uh, uh, very, very small, um, our uncle uh, picked me up to hold me up. And I guess, you know, Simba me like, oh, you know, you're so cute put my head right into a uh, spinning ceiling fan. Oh. And so that, you know, there you go. That explains some things. One steel plate later no. and uh, <laughs> everything's fine. Just don't turn the microwave on around him. Now my, my big stressor this week was actually pet related. Freddie was very, very ill on Monday night um, to the oh, point that no. I was getting pretty worried about him um throwing up a bunch and had uh diarrhea which was uh, very unpleasant for me to deal with let me just say i'm sure no I no bet. more pleasant for him um but he just kind of got over it so i guess that's i guess he that's probably, all there is to it probably he probably just ate a spider that didn't agree with him well i saw that in his last bit of throw up there was was what looked like some plant material so either he ate one of the household plants and it made him sick or he already felt sick and decided to eat a household plant and it only made it worse. In any event, I'd like to think he learned something, but he probably didn't. So we're just going to look later in the recording. But Freddie is, uh, in, in good condition today then. Well, other than like, you know, the fact that he has AIDS and whatnot, but that, that just is what it is. I I mean, beyond the normal, um, Malady, yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. yeah. He, in he's fact, he's 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 sitting there right behind my computer right now, um, kind of nodding off. It seems like so, as he as he likes to do. Yeah, yeah. he's gonna be in the background later, just eating all of your plants, <laughs> and we're gonna know. Well, in addition to a stressful day for you, Cody, I I, I understand, and this is like fuck. This is like my fucking bad late night talk show transition. Like, so I understand you saw some weird things today. Just the most well, contrived saw... fucking jumping off point. <laughs> Not both of these were today. So uh, the uh. first thing I actually saw, these are both traffic related. It seems like that's where it, it was gas stations and now everything bizarre is happening to me on the road. But these were both actually uh, things that were greatly satisfying to me. So a bit of a change of pace. But the uh, the first one happened on Saturday. I was out Saturday morning running some errands. And I was sitting at a stoplight in town behind these two motorcycles. And these were your classic motorcycle dickheads. Well, <laughs> I was going to guess, were they um, were the riders um, two 700-pound twins? Because yeah. <laughs> that sounds delightful. R.I.P. to those guys who are surely dead by now. I don't know yeah, for sure, they but, that, but there, there's no way they're still here. Yeah. Um, so this one, one guy in particular, just your standard motorcycle douchebag, short, fat, kind of nerdy looking wearing glasses, but he had the Harley shirt and the back, the blue sticker on his motorcycle. And they're just kind of sitting at this red light. And these two, like, say like 14, 15 year old kids are in the crosswalk walking by and they're listening to music on one of their phones. I, you know, just whatever the kids are listening to now, uh, I could not hear the song. It was a rap song of some sort, but when they get there, 
they they start being douchebags and like cranking up their radios and they were playing like fucking Molly Hatchet or whatever those inbred hillbillies uh, like down there, and like kind of you know just clearly fucking with these kids who like first of all leave people alone in public, especially if if they are literal children and you are an adult and you don't know them, but you know he's yeah. So they're they're just being douchebags this whole time, and the kids are just kind of looking at him like fucking whatever, man. And they walk past, and then the the light goes green, and this uh, short, fat, glasses wearing douche nozzle on the the bike nearest to me. As soon as he takes off, I can see his phone falling out of his back pocket. <laughs> And I ran that thing right the fuck over, and so did, like, five other people behind me. That was extremely satisfying. (laughs) That is perfect. That reminded me slightly of um, one of my all-time favorite drill tweets. So long, suckers. I rev up my motorcycle and create a huge cloud of smoke. When the cloud dissipates, I'm lying completely dead on the pavement. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's such satisfying instant karma. And then... After I I texted you guys that I had something uh, weird interaction-wise, like right before I left my office, and then on the way home, I saw something else awesome. Uh, there was this lady, she was driving like a, wasn't like a Jeep, it was kind of like a Jeep, just like a really small SUV type of thing with a sunroof. And you know how some people will uh, have their dogs and they the dogs like to hang their heads out the window and they're having a, having a blast in the back of this car. This lady had a huge dog. I'm not sure what kind it looked. It's face looked like some kind of retreat. It might've even been like a Newfoundland or something, but it was just this huge white dog sitting on the back seat with his head sticking through the sunroof. Hell yeah. Like a little canine periscope. Like it's the fucking Flintstones. That's beautiful. Yeah. And that that was that was awesome. He was he was having a real good day, and uh, after that, I, I was too. So, <laughs> shout out to uh, shout out to that guy. Glad you glad you had some fun. The phone thing also reminded me. Wanted to the the podcast wanted to give a shout out to uh, Pirates rookie Rodolfo Castro. If you didn't see, and, and I and I believe his his first game in the major leagues um, made a bit of a of a goof. When he was uh, running the bases and before he got slid into third, I guess forgot that his phone was still in his pocket and it <laughs> fell out um, onto the field to play and he had to retrieve it. Uh, was suspended one game by Major League Baseball. So justice for Rodolfo Castro. I think the embarrassment is, is plenty of the punishment there. The, the yeah. gif of his phone sliding out while he's sliding into third is like the most perfect picturesque. And then he just like steps on it while he's standing up. Still not quite as good of a story as Pablo Sandoval um, liking thirst traps on Instagram while on the toilet during a game, but pretty close. (laughs) So justice for Rodolfo Castro. uh, We we stand in solidarity with you, you, buddy. Um, So uh, we we were talking earlier and we realized it's been a while since we did some more college lore. Um, And I did think of a couple stories. Lest you all think, that everything we did while at IC was just goofing off and getting drunk. No, no, no. Granted, that was most of what we did, yeah. but not all like, of what we did. We like occa- 75 to 85%. We occasionally went to class, and even some of our non-class activities were productive, albeit in our own special way. 
Cody, one that I remember, and I was not there for this. I think it was like my first week, which also would have been Jack's first week at IC before he even knew the two of us. So we might have been in orientation, but um, I happen to remember uh, a day when none other than than some of the any they are definitely guys, but would be in you know <laughs> classification of very bad guys. I think universally agreed upon. None other uh, than than the Westboro Baptist Church rolled into town, and uh, yeah, you, they are. I, I give them props for being equally hated by both like political wings. Yeah, in America for completely different reasons, but yeah, yeah. Uh, they, they are such pricks that they have managed to piss off everybody, literally everybody who is not actively a part of Westboro Baptist Church, fucking hates them. That's I, I, impressive. I just happen to remember that uh, you and you and our friend Mike uh, decided to go out and uh, get your two cents in. So, so would you care to relay your experience in encountering the Westboro Baptist Church? Sure. Well, it, it wasn't just me and Mike. Uh, it was several of our other friends that were. So we were juniors at this point, And I think basically uh, the deal was you guys were freshmen and it was like your first week. So you yeah. guys weren't really comfortable bailing on class yet. Yeah. Uh, I, I had no man. Such how, how the fucking like, times no, change. Fuck. Right. <laughs> yeah. I was like, fuck that noise. Yeah. Um, so me and Mike and then a couple of our other uh, couple other people we knew met us down there later and um yeah it really is a, a spectacle these people have put so much effort into making asses out of themselves it really is. so first of all um they set up in this kind of lot that's on this the main drag here in town and they had this area cordoned off with like orange almost like snow fence and police tape and shit like that. So while uh, our group rolled up to the protest, actually a cop walked up to us no. and said, hey. Well, hold on. I thought you you and Mike went to the liquor store, and that's where you encountered the cop. Do I have that wrong? We. It might have been the liquor store that we parked at. We did not go in there before the protest. That's too bad. But I think I think the liquor store was where, uh, where I parked, maybe. And... So we are in, in the cop sees us getting out of the car, sees our friends pull up and get out of their car. And we're all walking over and the cop stops us and says, hey, I don't know what, how much you know about Westboro Baptist, but how they make their money is they provoke people into doing things that legally meet the legally meet the requirement of making them uns, quote unsafe. So, and then they sue them. So he's like, look, I know it's tempting, but whatever these guys do, just keep a respectable distance and try not to, like, literally threaten them. <laughs> like, you can call them all the bad names you want. Just don't do not do anything that could even be remotely construed as I'm going to come over there and kick your ass. Because the minute you do that, they're going to they're gonna milk a bunch of money out of you and the city and the uh, police department and all that other shit. So with that on our minds, we made our way across to the lot and there are these 15 yahoos out there with, you know, the signs, the, the signs you always see uh, uh, containing many biblical verses and homophobic slurs. And 
So we are just out there heckling the fuck out of these guys. Like, that's basically, we're like, okay, we can't threaten you. We're just going to roast you. And it was easy, because these are the most inbred-looking people in the world. And, like, I could tell who their guy was that they relied on for, like, getting people to cross the line so they could sue them. Because there was one guy who kept just taunting all of the protesters and, like, clearly making light of the fact that they were even there. And this guy is, like... I don't know. I've met a lot of people uh, over the years who I would like to give a good ass kicking to, but just haven't gotten the opportunity. This guy is top five on that list easily. He's like um, the Adonis Aslam. He's there to get two texts and ruffle some feathers. He's not there yeah. to actually get some meaningful minutes in. Yeah. yeah. No, he's like Ben Wallace if he also wasn't good <laughs> at basketball. Um, yeah, so... Also, another thing I don't know if you guys know about the Westboro Baptist Church. I think you guys probably have both heard this, but uh, those listeners who have never actually experienced Westboro in per uh, person, they also have, in addition to all of the expensive signs, they also had, they set up like a boom box and they were playing music. And what they had done was they had, under the, the license of fair use and parody, Reimagined a bunch of hit songs, uh, but with their homophobic super Jesus freak message. So, like, I I don't remember like American Idiot was one of them. Um, they did like a a bunch just a bunch of shit that was <laughs> well, big on like, the charts in 2010. Like motherfuckers, you realize the the original of that song is about you, correct? Yeah. <laughs> the song is about you. you know? yeah. yeah, and. Just a bunch of, you know, popular songs that were floating in the ether, but with these god-awful, super homophobic, uber-Jesus-y lyrics. And I was just like, first of all, who does this? This has to be somebody within the church that has musical ability, because I, I know, like, there are production companies that, like, say somebody wants a jingle for a radio ad. We've dealt with those people from time to time that will, like, you know, make a song for you. Surely none of those people are hurting for money badly enough to take money from you to put this absolute appalling mess oh, on a yeah. CD. Somewhere. Yeah, that's an in-house production. It's got to be. Yeah, it's got to be. I think it'd be funny if, if you went to hunt down these songs and you found them. It turns out it was just kids bop. <laughs> that's been a subliminal messaging all along. Oh my well, God. I tell you what, if that was a kid's bop CD, uh, we need to look into some things. Because <laughs> the rise of Donald Trump is suddenly much less surprising when you imagine that that's been kid's bop for the last 10 years. Yeah, um, really, really surreal experience. And eventually everyone just, you know, the, the procession happened, this uh, local soldier's funeral. Um the procession happened and at that point they got louder and yet everyone completely ignored them. That was the cool thing that I think I, I, I was very proud of the town for handling it that way because we're just heckling the fuck out of them. And then the funeral goes by and we all just turn around and respectfully completely pretend they're not there. Mm -hmm. um, and then it turns around and, uh, and then we turned around and went back to roasting them for a while. So um that's kind of how the day ended they just you know packed their shit up and left and um we uh hurled a few additional expletives at them and then uh 
they got out of town and have not been back since. And uh, maybe keep it that way. Uh, those two or three of you that are still out there. <clears throat> That's Westboro Baptist Church barely exists anymore. Because after Fred Phelps died, mm-hmm. like a bunch of the people came out and were like, yeah, we never really believed in that shit anyway. But like this is it was the church we were grew up grew up in and our parents and our grandparents and everything were super into it. So a, a lot of people just left after after him so i don't know if it even really exists anymore but uh i i hope not um that's uh that's what that experience was yeah and that that wasn't our only foray into standing up to homophobia while we were at ic it's like even though there's still a long ways to go and you could argue we're maybe going backwards in some respects it is crazy how far we've come like when we were in college you know gay rights were like the big social issue like things, well, yeah. things that that are, are the, barely uh, a matter of debate among most people were still, you know, and I'm I'm not tooting my own horn by saying we're out on the forefront on that, but like those were contentious issues, even stuff that don't seem contentious now. And we, both individually, and I mean all three of us individually, um, but also there were like student organizations we were part of that were 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 part of that whole fight. So I mean we we're very open about our our support for gay rights even at the time, right? Um. And when um, I was, a, I guess when I was a junior, maybe, um, we found out that um, the... Yeah, this would have been your your junior year. Yeah. And my second senior year, I was stupid and double majored, so yeah. I wound up going for five years. Um, so And that worked out great. So um, we found out that the um, bishop who had been... Um, retained to speak for baccalaureate at graduation was this guy named Father Thomas Paprocki, who is like just a heinous right wing bigot. Like not like yeah. even by the standards of priests. Like just go and go. Yeah, to his I mean wicked... this this guy's Catholic diocese, but I mean this guy goes beyond the pale. Yeah, like you know, loudly he, an asshole. Go go to his Wikipedia page and just read the section political views. He did not stop after this whole ordeal. He's been in the news a couple times since. Um, he had some pretty interesting views about vaccines in particular, but um, just a, a publicly horrible, horrible man. And we found out about this and like, that doesn't seem right. And we, we one of the people we contacted was the, um, um, I guess, class president, our friend Corey, who is also, you know, he, yep. him, he himself is, is openly gay and was the um, president of Straits and Gays for Equality. And so we talked with him, like, hey, did you know about this? Did anyone ask you about this? And he's like, no, nobody had said anything about this to me. And so what we did is um, the two of us and several other heads of various student organizations put together a letter to the the president of the college who is on his way out. It was his last semester. We knew that already. Um, basically expressing our disapproval and, you know, saying so- that there would be you know, possible protest actions we could take if you didn't, you know, if you didn't fix this problem. They're not around anymore. Should we, would we be safe, you think, in going into a little description of the Stoyers? Um, I I don't know. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) suffice it to say, okay, here's what I can tell you. This guy was pretty old and he was very odd. Yeah. Also, he he was German. Yeah. Now, he himself was not... (laughs) bigoted or even right wing but part of it was like he just he was so phoning it in by this point and really didn't care about any of our concerns clearly 
But we got this letter together, and we go to drop it off at the president's office. And I guess yeah, somebody... Alex and I were the one... And yeah, the two of us. was just to deliver it to him. Yeah, and yeah. we figured, you know, like, maybe he'll reach out. But I guess he'd caught wind of what we were going to be doing. And so his secretary says, actually, could you stick around? The president wants to speak with you. And we're like, now? And she's like, yeah. We're like, we look at each other like, all right. <laughs> and so we go into the president's office and, um, you know, he, he confronts us about this. And we had just this long debate about, you know, his whole point was, and like, you know, really he, he sees where we're coming from with this, but it's so hard to book people for these things. And he doesn't want him like, fuck off, you know, that is the most <laughs> gutless fucking argument I have well, ever heard. And I'm well, like, no wonder I no wonder I'm going to graduate from this place and still be stupid with you people in charge. You have well, no spine. It's really hard to get people to come to the middle of Illinois. Just just let this one go, man. But I mean, our point was like, also, this guy's a fucking offering, asshole. Yeah. Offering him this spot is. If not a tacit endorsement, it's certainly saying I don't have enough of a problem with this right. to not invite you to speak at an important event like a baccalaureate ceremony. I mean, I didn't give a fuck about it. I didn't even go. But well, yeah, like, I'm, it, it's yeah. not required, Assuming, thankfully. Thankfully, he was not like a yeah, commencement but speaker. For, but for a lot of people, it's a big deal. Um, so, yeah, just extending that invitation for... For him to do really anything on this campus is kind of irresponsible, and it doesn't align with, like, what we thought the values of the college were. And I remember, this is the point where um, I, I was very close to saying something along the lines of, oh, fuck off, you old Nazi bastard, and then just <laughs> leaving the office. Um, but he was, we're like, yeah, we, we don't think that that's really in line with the philosophy of what this institution is or should be. Right. He goes, well, what? what anti-catholic i was like, like all are right, you fucking buddy. <laughs> kidding me right now and he's like look any he's like look it's in catholic doctrine almost any catholic is going to have those beliefs and i was like okay first of all that is a huge assumption for you to be making about people in 2011 also <laughs> i so what we're inviting uh homophobes and next year a child molester if you want to you want to be you're so concerned about welcoming catholics and that you're going to include every part of their horrible history in this campus now, like what had, had this been like had this you know been like an arranged meeting what we probably should have done but we just didn't have the opportunity it was like bring in a lot of this guy's quotes cuz like yeah. he he goes so much farther well, than than ordinary catholic doctrine is, like it's insultingly I'm, I'm glad bad. I'm glad you said that because I'm pretty sure the reason he asked us to stick around was so we wouldn't have time to prepare right? yeah right so I so I I think we I think he thought we weren't quite as smart as we are and uh, we held our own I think a little better than than he expected <laughs> yeah. us to but uh, of course nothing came of it he still delivered yeah the, the baccalaureate speech. yeah and the thing is like we really didn't have a whole lot of leverage on him because he was you know a lame duck anyway baccalaureate was not required it wasn't wouldn't have been required anyway i do remember the one big thing we did accomplish through through making a scene about it was um whatever whatever music course or whatever music program ordinarily their big final project was that they would perform at baccalaureate and we were able to achieve that um the professors of those classes no longer required 
anybody perform. They could get their grade the other way so that they didn't have to be part of the ceremony. I think pro- I think a lot of people yeah, didn't I, go also. So. Yeah, I think um, so. I think that is uh, the both the IC um, like orchestra and also the choir. Um, so uh, shout out to uh, doctors Garrett Allman and uh, Abby Musgrove for making that little change in yep. uh, allowing your your students to stand up for not being a piece of shit um yeah, congrats think, for that so I, I yeah think, i don't remember Corey may have put out a statement as class president too denouncing the whole thing i, I think he know. i think he probably did yeah. um and i know i know sage was very publicly unhappy with this yeah uh, as one might expect so yeah um that was uh you know we fought the law and the law won but uh we you know at least we we got in the ring so yeah, so, those are those are the the times we tried to stand up for social justice and didn't really accomplish anything. Well, goddamn it, we tried. <laughs> those are so those are like the two <laughs> non-stupid things we did. Next time we get back into IC lore, we guarantee it'll be the usual dumb yeah. shit. But we did want to make that aside. Um, so yeah, we could go on and on about this all we want, but at the end of the day, that's not what we're here for. We're here to talk about some guys. So let's get to it. Jack, could you help me out, please? Yeah, I think I remember it. It's uh. The guys. Thank you. So I believe, uh, Cody, you are up first this week. Yep. Is that right? All right. We'll take us that away. That's correct. All righty. We are talking about Ronnie Biggs this week. And Ronnie Biggs is, I, I said this earlier, but I don't think we were recording. I would describe this guy as a rascal if I were to have to sum up his, his personality and career. This guy, he was your classic gentleman thief type. He wasn't uh, terribly uh, adherent to the law, but he liked to have a good time, and he wasn't really out to hurt anybody. He was just kind of a rascal. Um, the name is is giving, like, pro wrestler vibes. Yeah. <laughs> well, he was born in uh, 1929 in Stockwell, London, in England, so already not off to a great start. Hmm. Um, as we have discussed on this podcast many times, uh, London is uh, a place of nightmares and has been basically since uh, it existed. Um, as a child, things got even a little tougher when due to World War II, uh, his family, I'm going to list the places his family fled to. And I'm going to have to ask you guys to try not to laugh as much as possible. But oh, these no. are English names. Mm hmm. And they're dumb as fuck. <clears throat> uh, right. First, they moved to Flitwick, Bed- uh, Flitwick, Bedfordshire. <sighs> then uh, Delible, Cornwall. Come on. Then Hufflepuff, Bunkwallow. That's that one's not real. Dingleberry upon Snagdog. We're, okay, were, yeah. any, were any of those yeah. real? <laughs> the first two were. Okay. Okay. The third one, there's no fucking way. <laughs> no. No, uh, the the other two were just me fucking around and having okay. fun. Um, okay. Okay. So yeah. the up arms. It's parody. You have to allow me a little poetic license here. <laughs> um, so at the age of 18, he signed up to join the Royal Air Force. Uh, he did not last long. Two months later, he was dishonorably discharged after, after breaking into a chemist shop or a pharmacy. Shortly after leaving the Air Force, he was arrested for stealing a car. See, Ronnie's favorite hobby seems to have been getting caught stealing stuff. It's it's a very 
unusual hobby. It's not one that I've heard many people practice, but Ronnie, Ronnie loved stealing stuff, and he was really, really bad at it. See, when they explain to Ronnie Biggs how to be a criminal, it's almost like they... It's almost like he read, like, the first half of the page, but missed the part where you're supposed to get away with it. Yeah. Imme that is supposed to be part after, of it, yes. Yeah. Immediately after he was released from prison, uh, he took, like, literally days after, he took part in the robbery of a bookmaker's office in London, for which he and his co-conspirators were, again, immediately busted. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Went back to jail <laughs> after he got out. I'm going to give you three guesses as to what happened to him next. Well, I think he was uh, probably rehabilitated and integrated himself to um, being a productive member of society. And then well, he robbed somebody. <laughs> yeah, he did that. <laughs> he got caught committing yet another robbery and was sentenced to a third term in prison. It's what I get for having faith in a guy named Ronnie Biggs. Yeah. Well, as we'll see, uh, that's just generally not a good idea. We're like five minutes into the story, and he's already been arrested three times. I can't <laughs> wait to see where this goes. This is honestly about as quickly in real life as you can possibly be arrested three times. Because he like got arrested, went immediately to prison, immediately went out and got busted trying to steal something else. The, the closest... I mean, it literally, like... He should have just left his shit in his jail cell the last time he came out because he knows he's going to be back there in a couple weeks. The closest we've got on this show is um, uh, Jimmy Scott burning down his elementary school, going to juvie, yes. turning 18, uh, burning down a, a bunch of other buildings, going to prison, getting out, working at Burger King for a little bit, and then starting a huge flood. Yes. Yeah. So and To episode three, bacteria soup and leech pie, if you want to. Uh, what a throwback. That was yeah. a good one. Um, so after his third prison sentence, the thought finally <coughs> occurs to him to go straight. Um, he worked as a carpenter and found love. He married the daughter of a primary school headmaster who I bet was thrilled about this. Yeah. Um, and, uh, they settled down and had three children, uh, three sons. It looked like Ronnie could finally settle down and leave his youthful foolishness behind. I wonder if the first time he came over to, to meet her parents, he just like spent most of the time just kind of looking around, scoping the place out. <laughs> Boy, you guys got a lot of nice robbable, I mean, great possessions that you own in here, huh? That's lovely jewelry oh, you're was... wearing, ma'am. Do you have any other jewelry anywhere in the house? <laughs> Sounds like it sounds like a bad like 2007 rom-com where he's just there to case the house, but he falls in love with their daughter. I know a fun Boy. game. Let's everybody go around the circle and uh, share the combinations to our safes. You know, I gotta say, this is a lovely kitchen. I love the way you leave the back door unlocked. <laughs> that movie stars uh, Owen Wilson and Sandra Bullock 100%. Oh, beautiful. I'd wow. Watch it. <laughs> That's... That's actually a pretty good Owen This Wilson. summer from New Line Cinema, my heart is locked up. All right. Oh. Um, now I don't want to so, watch it. <laughs> I didn't to begin with. It sounds terrible. I only um, watch Lion Gate films. This is terrible. <laughs> um, it looked like Ronnie could finally settle down and 
forget all of the hijinks of his past. And he wanted to. <laughs> However, things hit a bit of a snag in 1963 when Ronnie and his family wanted to move into a bigger house to hold all three kids and the couple, and they needed some money for a down payment. Oh, See, no. Ronnie was making enough that he, he was pretty sure he could make that the house payments. He just needed the down payment, and then things would be settled. One last job. Yeah. At this time, he was working on the house of a train conductor who was about uh, to retire. And oh. he was surprised to find this man associating with his old friend from prison and tonight's sub guy, Bruce Reynolds. Oh, boy. Can I just say, I I'm already sensing a problem here, which is that although Ronnie has a really good track record of stealing things, he doesn't have a good track record of getting away with it. And this time he kind of does need to get away with it. <laughs> yeah yeah no uh so bruce reynolds uh he is a very interesting guy as well um alex here's a fun fact that you'll appreciate his mm -hmm. son nick is a member of the british band alabama three who are most famous for composing and recording the theme to the sopranos oh interesting which is a dope ass theme song it is that is a very random connection yeah it's extremely weird and by far, not the only uh, connection to the professional music industry that we will hear this evening. I see. So, he was surprised to find that uh, this conductor and Bruce Reynolds were uh, in contact. He was even more surprised to learn that the two were hatching a plot for a robbery. Ah. A Surprise. Robbery. Yeah. They were hatching the plot for a robbery. A train robbery. Well, I was going to say, might like... <laughs> even go as far as to call it the Great Train Robbery of 1963. Oh, God. Now, some of you might be familiar with this story, so we're not going to go into super huge detail other than the specifics of Ronnie's involvement, which actually, spoiler alert, turn out to be pretty funny. Um, so in addition to Biggs, Reynolds, and the train conductor who, by the way, has never been caught and therefore never identified. They brought in 12 additional members, bringing their total number up to 15. That's a lot of people. I really hope this was done by way of one of those like obnoxiously overlong and convoluted crew assembly sequences like in the Oceans movies. <laughs> you son of a bitch, I'm in. Um... <laughs> So they put the plan in motion on the night of August 7th, 1963. Biggs told his wife that he was going to go off uh, logging with Reynolds to help make some extra cash. And in the early morning of August 8th, which was Ronnie's 34th birthday, by the way, the plan was set into motion. Birthday heist. The... <laughs> yeah, that's what we're doing for my birthday this year. Guys. <laughs> We're not doing a vacation. We're not visiting Jack. Yeah. We're not doing anything. Yeah. We're going to go rob something. Look, look, my birthday's in 10 days. Alex, if cut, you guys... Alex cut this out. My cut birthday's this out in post because we don't want this on record. <laughs> huh? It's in 10 days. If you guys want to come to Indy, we'll rob a bank together. Real big bonding moment. Just like just like the college <laughs> days. I mean, that would not be the first time. Uh, you know what? I'm not even going to finish that sentence. That's going to open some weird doors. Um, so... The target for this heist was the overnight Glastonbury to uh, London mail train. 
See, back then, banks and other institutions often moved their money by train. This is before electronic transfer. Uh, this was back when, you know, money was actually semi-real. It wasn't just made up numbers <laughs> in an account. It had to actually, you know, be like physical money. Uh, so they had to move this money by train. And they used the mail train, obviously. There weren't any passengers. Um, that's why they were robbing a mail train. They weren't just, like, stealing a bunch of people's correspondence. Although that would have been funnier, I think. Um, so, early that morning, the morning of the 8th, um, they set out to intercept this train. And the train driver, Jack Mills, stopped the train at a uh, red signal light at Sears Crossing in Ledburn. This was unusual. There was not supposed to be, there was not a scheduled stop there. There was no reason that he could tell for there to be a red signal light. Well, that light had been tampered with by the robbers and switched over to red in order to stop the train. <coughs> and it was clever. It worked perfectly. Um, as the stop was unexpected, one of the crew members climbed down to use one of the line side telephones they had to call ahead and ask what was going on. As soon as he picked up the phone, he saw that the phone lines had been cut and <laughs> immediately had one of those classic, oh shit, moments. Like the Hitchcock zoom and he's just like, oh fuck. Yep. And... Then it was on. The robbers poured into the cabin from both sides. Uh, Jack Mills tried struggling with the robbers, which was a really stupid thing to do because there are 15 of them, and was very quickly whacked on the head with an iron bar and knocked out. Oh, no. <laughs> the old Len Konecki treatment. Yep. Yeah, not a fire extinguisher in sight. Um, <laughs> not quite as funny. I wish it had been just a frying pan. <laughs> I feel like that's the most cartoony way you could possibly do it. With, like, the really um, satisfying, like, kong. Bang. Yeah. Um, that was the easy part, getting control of the train. Knocking a guy out super easy. Well, apparently so, because they had an iron bar and they hit him in the head with it. I can't imagine that was that <laughs> difficult. Um, here's the hard part, and here's where Ronnie comes in. They now have to move this train half a mile down the line to unload the money and make their getaway. Mm -hmm. See, they parked the truck a half a mile up the line, so the train didn't see the red signal with a vehicle parked there and go, oh, well, you're, you're trying mm -hmm. to rob us is what you're doing. And presumably this isn't like when your car craps out and you're like a block from the gas station and you just, you just get out and roll it into, into the parking lot. Or is it? No. Oh. <laughs> or is it? <laughs> No, 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 no. Not with a, uh, a sizable train. Um, so his job was actually to arrange for the, the aforementioned retired conductor to come along with them so they could move the train. And he did this. So they sent Ronnie and this conductor in to move the train. However, the problem was the train, turns out, is a totally different kind of train than the conductor is used to driving. He mm. couldn't even get the <clears throat> damn thing started. Yeah, it turns out he's got like this this face and he's saying his name's Thomas. I don't know what's going on. But you better shut up because I'm getting real sick of him. Talking about his friend Percy. I'll search off of your hat. I'm going to blow this thing's face off. It 
quickly became apparent that Ronnie and the driver were both completely useless in this uh, this robbery. And Reynolds was like, just go wait in the truck and help us unload the bags when we figure out how to get this fucking thing down here. That has got to be the most useless a human being has ever felt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you are already ripping off a train for money, and you're so bad at it that you get, like, sent to the car. That is, like, to, the literal... load chick. The literal you had one job thing. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I just... You know, they send you to unload the bags because that's something you can't possibly fuck up. Um, <laughs> how did they get this train moved? They had to wake Jack Mills back up. Oh, uh, the guy who they knocked out before. It is. They had to wake him back up and get him to move the train for them. It is good then that they didn't give him the literal Len Konecki treatment. <laughs> they would have been in some no. tough shit. Like, can Although, we wake him up? Like, I don't know. Can you can you put his brains back into his head? We probably need Although, to start there. I, I will say uh, something I did come across in this research. He did get hurt pretty bad, and he was never quite fully over it. Like, this was it, not completely disabling, but, like, it made his life a lot more difficult. I'm just um, imagining them just, like, pushing him on the shoulder and just being like, Hey, buddy, uh, I know we just gave you a massive concussion, but I'm going to need you to think real hard for us. Dude. Why'd you hit yourself in the head with that iron bar like that, man? You are you drunk, dude? You were you were stumbling something crazy. You hit your head on the way down. Luckily, we're here you to help you. So yeah, we're just gonna need you to help us move this train about a half mile up the track where it's safe, and then you can take a little nap because you don't need to be driving right now. <laughs> now, um, the, the robbers get him to do this. They unload the money and made off with what would be the equivalent. Of 58 million pounds today. That is the largest heist in UK history. Yes, sir. That is a shitload of money. The robbers went back to their hideout, which was a farmhouse uh, that they had been using. They split the take and left, and they left one guy behind that was supposed to burn down the farmhouse so they couldn't. There was no evidence, no fingerprints, nothing like that. Um... This guy bitched out, though. Like, literally, as soon as they were far enough down the road that he didn't see him, he just fucking took off. He was like, nope. Fuck this noise. I'm taking my money. I'm going underground. And did not burn the farmhouse down. Scotland Yard got there and pulled some fingerprints. Still didn't have any major clues as to the identity of any of these guys uh, besides the prints. And there were only, like, two different sets of fingerprints because they did do their best to wipe stuff off. Um, but eventually they found a snitch that was willing to inform on the gang and give them actual names. And then the hunt was on. In 1964, 11 of the robbers were caught and put to trial. Nine of them, including Ronnie, were found guilty and imprisoned. Here's the thing about Ronnie Biggs. Despite constantly getting caught stealing stuff, he apparently really didn't like prison. Which, I, I understand. Yeah. You know, it sucks. Yeah, but... It's not fun. Um, so, and Ronnie is in prison for... He's sentenced to just under 30 years. And Ronnie's like, nah. I am not spending 30 years in this fucking shithole. He had served 15 months when he and some criminal friends arranged for an escape. Mm. He climbed down a rope ladder, jumped into a waiting van, and absconded to Belgium. 
now, settling first in Brussels. It, is prison escapee the our most frequent subtopic? I find we go back to this well I, a lot. It never gets old, ever. Yeah. That's, you know, that's pretty frequently uh, a, at least a part of the story, yeah. yeah. I mean, there was, a, there was a guy that I did whose entire gimmick was escaping prison four yeah. times, so... There, there's and then always you had a guy that, like, cross-dressed his way out of prison. There, there's always some fresh new twist on it, so I'm curious to see how <laughs> this goes. So, he absconds to Belgium. He sends word and has his wife and children come and meet him in Paris, France. In Paris, Ronnie got a new fake identity and some plastic surgery to help him avoid being recognized. They stayed in Paris until 1966 when Biggs decided to flee with his family to Australia. Apparently, British criminals just have an affinity for Australia. I wonder if it's like a homing pigeon. They're just like <laughs> at some point. At some point, they feel like they need to 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 go to Australia. They're just like something's calling me. It sounds like a didgeridoo in my head. By 1967, Biggs had spent almost all of the money he'd made from the robbery, most of it on his escape, like buying a new identity, getting plastic surgery, and moving around. That took up most of what he had left. Like, hmm. um, 15 people splitting 58 million pounds, or the equivalent of, like, it's <clears throat> a lot of fucking money to waste on, like, like hot air balloon escapes or whatever the fuck he was doing. It's like but one I of those. Mean, uh, it's like traveling those... through Europe completely incognito and with falsified. I, I mean that, that's, that's yeah. not a cheap thing to do. <clears throat> yeah, it, it becomes like one of those class actions for everyone who drank milk in the last year, where by the time it gets they gets down, they divide it up. You get t like ten cents. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so after uh, moving to Australia. Ronnie's got to get a job because he can't live on, you know, he can't just count on the money to last. So he gets work at a TV station in Melbourne working on set construction. And for a time being, everything kind of settled down. This did not last terribly long as somebody tipped him off that Interpol suspected that he was in Australia. Ronnie, of course, immediately hopped a passenger liner bound for Panama which would eventually land him in his destination, Brazil. Hopefully the Interpol agent chasing after him is as useless as the one in the horrible, horrible 2013 film Now You See Me. Just absolutely fucking useless. God damn it, Cody. We're how? not going to get out of this. How? You did that do they expect? How do they expect us to think? That's on the list of trigger words. You know <sighs> this. We talk about this before every show. I, uh... I actually was thinking Ocean's 12, which is another shitty heist movie. Um, but yeah, same, same general principle. Um, they so expect he... us to believe. Anyway, sorry. Go on. Alex needs to go to the box for a few minutes. So Jack and I uh, finish this topic out. We made no. the mistake of making Alex the head of this Discord server. I have no power to mute him right now. I'm sweating. So... When he proposed to his wife that, like, hey, we got to go to Panama and then to Brazil, we can settle down there, we'll be safe, she eventually just goes, fuck this. No, no, I'm not fucking doing this anymore. I am tired of moving to a new country every six months. It's just really getting annoying, and we've got kids and shit. 
Like, I, I'm not going to join you in running from the law around the entire world for the rest of your life. I'm just not going to do she, it. She just looks at him and she's just like, this isn't what I meant when I said we should travel more. Although, Brazil? <laughs> not a bad place to wind up. Um, so, yeah. She stays in the kids with Australia. She's just like, no, I'm not going to sit in 100 degree weather all day drinking rum and playing dominoes with a bunch of old Nazis. I'm, I'm just, I'm done with it. So she files for divorce uh, after Ronnie leaves for South America. Eventually, a few years later, she sells her story to an Australian media group for 40,000 pounds. So she got her pound of flesh out of this, too. Okay. So why, speaking of those old Nazis, was Brazil in such high demand as a place for criminals to hide out? Well, because for a very long time, Brazil did not have extradition treaties with most mm -hmm. of the Western countries. Mm -hmm. Now, they still, your government could still request that you be extradited, but the government, the Brazilian government was under no obligation to do so and very rarely did. If you don't have an extradition treaty with a country, it is very rare that they will actually allow you to extradite <clears throat> somebody unless they are like a problem for them too. And they just want you gone. That's so as long as he doesn't rob another place while in Brazil, he should be fine. Yeah. But yeah, Basically. to be clear, that, that's that's only your backup option. If you had good enough uh, scientific knowledge, the U.S. would just bring you in and protect you. That's true. <laughs> but uh, Ronnie was no scientist. <clears throat> for Yeah, he was just, just a shithead. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the British were still... Like, yeah, they... Brazil does not normally extradite. Um, Ronnie still had to kind of watch his back because the British really wanted to get this guy. Um, in 1974, Scotland sent detectives to Rio de Janeiro where Ronnie was living to arrest him, but they were foiled yet again when it turned out that Ronnie's Brazilian girlfriend was pregnant and the Brazilian government will never, under any circumstances, extradite the parents of a Brazilian citizen. Way to go, Ronnie, so, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Safe yet again. I wonder Ronnie if he knew that, know. or if he just got really lucky with that, like, technicality. I think he just got really lucky. <laughs> yeah, safe. Because Ronnie is many things, but I don't think he's a genius. Saved by a breeding kink. Yep. Well, that and the fact that uh, Brazil is, like, 99% Catholic, and that country has never seen a condom. Um... Or at least at well, this point in history. Say, I, ha I have heard the stories uh, from the Olympics when they were there. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. 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 If well, that's to be believed, 70s, and then yes. So. Yeah. So, <clears throat> Ronnie sets out to try and find something he really wants to do. He was kind of over the whole stealing shit thing. Because, you know, all, all it does is lead him to have to run around the world away from the authorities. Um... He took a turn with music. He recorded an album with some of his musician friends he'd met in Brazil uh, called Mailbag Blues in 1974. Uh, it was an autobiographical album that Ronnie intended to use as the soundtrack for a movie about his life, although this never came to fruition. To support himself, Ronnie had, I think this is one of the best jobs a human being could ever have, if you could actually live on this, and apparently Ronnie could. 
what he did to support himself was because people knew who Ronnie Biggs was like the, the jig was up. The authorities knew who he was. They just wouldn't extradite him. And since he hadn't done anything in Brazil, he was totally free there. But everyone knows, Hey, this is one of the great train robbers. So what he did was he took to hosting barbecue parties at his house where people could pay a few bucks, come in, get some food and listen to Ronnie recount stories of the great train, ro train robbery and his uh, criminal past. <clears throat> Which pretty funny considering he was of no use whatsoever during the robbery. Right, but, right. You know, they don't have to know that necessarily. Yeah. How fucking cool would that be? You get paid to just three times a week have a big ass barbecue and tell stories <laughs> about the coolest shit you ever did. Hell Sign yeah. me up. So Ronnie is scraping by doing that. In 1978. He makes another foray into the field of professional music, uh, recording vocals on two tracks with the seminal punk band The Sex Pistols on oh. the soundtrack to their movie The Great Rock and Roll Swindle. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> this is after... So when Ronnie came in to record was like at the very end of The Sex Pistols, that whole story is just an absolute train wreck of, you know, ego and insanity, but... Um, at this point, the Pistols were basically split up. Both Johnny Rotten and Sid Vicious, who were the two that were famous, had already left the band. So it was Malcolm... Um, oh, what the hell's his name? The guitar player, who was the only one in the band that was actually talented, and the drummer were left. Steve Jones? Was he the guitar player? Was he the drummer? I don't remember. Anyway, so they recorded this with the two of them and Ronnie on lead vocals. Um... Again, this was the very end of the Sex Pistols um, <clears throat> career, but he recorded vocals on that track and a different one. They apparently recorded this session in a church uh, with the priest present, uh, all of them quite drunk, and everybody just having a good... He said it was so fucking fun. Everyone was having a blast. Um, his life would be pretty smooth sailing until 1981. In 1981, Ronnie was kidnapped by a group of British ex-military and taken to Barbados. Jesus. So these soldiers were hoping to extract a ransom from the British government. They're going to be like, hey, you've wanted this guy for a long time. We got him. We got him out of Brazil. He's here. Come get him. Unless you don't want to pay us uh I don't remember how much they asked for, but, you know, like 50,000 pounds or whatever. No. At which point, uh, <laughs> at which point <laughs> it was pointed out to them by Barbados law enforcement who caught them that Barbados also does not have an extradition treaty with the UK. So basically, yeah, they went and got him <laughs> from the place that the Brits couldn't get him away from. And took him to somewhere else where the Brits could not have gotten him away from. Absolute genius. Yeah. And so the Barbadian government just sent Biggs back to Brazil. They're <laughs> just like, all right, go home. Sorry about that whole fucking thing. Um, so in 1982, uh, Biggs catches another stroke of luck when his son, Michael, uh, who he had with the uh, woman he met in Brazil, became a star on a popular uh, Brazilian children's TV show and made the family financially stable again. 
Um, in the early 90s, Ronnie forayed back into music, collaborating with several South American and European punk bands, hmm. uh, performing vocals and adding some just kind of street cred. In 1997, the UK and Brazil finally ratified an extradition treaty, but they did deny the request from the British government to extradite Ronnie as he'd been living there for over 20 years at this point and had never caused any problems except for the time he got kidnapped. So they were like, seems like this guy's doing fine here. I don't think he really needs to go to prison. Also, now we can like hold that over his head. So he'll be a good boy while he's here. Yeah. He's, he's you know, in. Yeah. I, I just, you know, I, I don't think we need to send this guy to prison. And the UK showing, you know, that they share some DNA with America. We're very pissed about this. They're like, no, I don't care if it was 30 years ago. We want this guy in jail forever. Um, mostly, honestly, at this point, I think the, the British government was more pissed about the fact that he had evaded them for so long than his actual crime. I think it was more of a blow to the ego than anything else. So, in 2001, Ronnie made a very odd choice. He decided to return to the UK. He was fully aware that as soon as he set foot on British soil, he would be arrested again. But he was an older man who'd lived a good full life, seemed to have outgrown a lot of his former selfishness, and maybe his conscious conscience finally got the better of him. Or probably had something to do with it is he was in pretty poor health and probably wasn't going to have to serve out the 28 years he had left on his sentence one way or another. So in any case, Ronnie returned to England and, of course, was immediately rearrested and re-imprisoned. <clears throat> um again he's got 28 years left on his sentence here uh his son uh said that uh contrary to some press reports he didn't actually come just to receive health care that he couldn't have gotten in brazil uh because he had friends who would have kicked in money for that but he just he wanted to he wanted to be in England again. I think he really wanted to die in England. I think he did have some love for the country and he wanted to be there again before he died. Uh, whatever the consequences were. Um, he did, you know, he many times said, look, what I did was really stupid. I feel terrible for it, especially for, you know, the fact that Jack Mills got hurt so bad. It was a dumb thing to do. I don't have any of the money anymore. It's made my life fucking miserable. Like, what more do you people want from me at this point? In 2001, uh, he petitioned uh, the Home Office for early release on compassionate grounds because of his poor health. Um, he'd been treated four times at the hospital in less than six months. Um, he asked to be released into the care of his son so he could live out the rest of his life. However, they denied this request, and it looked like they were correct procedure wise in doing so because Ronnie's a lot tougher than I think a lot of people gave him credit for. Uh, this guy had serious Houdini genes. He could escape almost anything. It seemed like, um, on August 10th, 2005, he was still alive. Although he did then contract MRSA. Jesus. Yeah. Not good. So his representatives again, sought for his release on compassionate grounds, said that their client's death was likely to be imminent. However, uh, Home Secretary Charles Clark declined his appeal and said, no, MRSA is not necessarily terminal, and we don't let you out unless you have, like, three months or less to live, I think is the cutoff. 
Um, but at this point, Ronnie was kind of struggling. He had uh, a feeding tube and difficulty speaking. They did eventually move him from Belmarsh Prison to Norwich Prison on compassionate grounds. It was a little lower security, better facility. Um, and in December of that year, 2007, Biggs issued another appeal from Norwich asking to be released. He's like, look, I've been almost dead for like five years now. Can you please fucking let me out and just live with my family for a little while before I have to die? Um, yeah, he uh, again repeatedly apologized and, and said, "I look, I realized that this was really fucking dumb, but like. I, I have had a life of punishment since then. It just wasn't in prison. Um, but they again denied this request. He, he hung in there until January 2009 when a series of strokes were said to have rendered him unable to speak or walk. Um, his son, Michael, also claimed that the parole board might bring the release forward to July. Uh, on February 13th, uh, Biggs had to be taken to the hospital yet again, suffering from pneumonia. Uh, probably caused in part by the strokes. Um, Michael said he had serious pneumonia, but was stable. Um, and again, they called for compassionate release. And the parole board in 2009 recommended that Biggs be released on July 4th, having served a third of his sentence. However, the home secretary's office did not accept this recommendation and refused parole. God damn saying that Biggs was wholly unrepentant, even though, like, he has done nothing but acknowledge how stupid this was since the moment he got back to the country. Yeah, there's some there's some retaliation going on there. Yeah. Yes. No, the, these are... This is... And again, I know this guy committed the crime, but this is an abuse of power, I think. Yeah. I think you were just... I think you are taking this out on someone who made you look stupid for a long time uh, and using your office to settle your own personal feelings, which is always bad especially for a prosecutor um on july 28th he was readmitted to the hospital um yet again uh on the 30th it was claimed by his representatives that he had been given permission to challenge the decision to refuse him parole um after a protracted legal battle Ronnie Biggs was finally released from custody on August 6, 2009, two days before his 80th birthday. However, Iron Ronnie, as soon as he gets out of prison, his health improves. <laughs> so they thought, okay, well, his you know, he'll be out of the hospital pretty soon. He might be well enough to go to a nursing home instead of just dying in this hospital. Um, some people claim that his poor health prior had been faked, but his lawyer was like, no, this guy's going to die pretty soon. Like, I, I know it looks good right now, but like he's, he's not in good shape. Uh, he lasted until, or, or still a little longer yet than I think a lot of people expected. He, in 2010, he went back to the hospital yet again with chest pains, had another stroke in February, 2011, but was still alive and launched a new and updated autobiography uh, called Ronnie Biggs, Odd Man Out, The Last Straw, in February 2011. Um, he was unable to speak and used a word board to communicate with the press at the release of this book, but, I mean, he was still hanging in there. Pray for Mojo. Yeah. In January 2012, uh, 
ITV Studios commissioned a five-part drama called Mrs. Biggs to be based around the life of Ronnie's wife, Charmaine, who had sold her story uh, to the Australian press years earlier. Um, it premiered in uh, February 2012. In 2013, Biggs was well enough to attend the funeral of fellow train robber Bruce Reynolds. He hung in there until December 18th, 2013. 12 years after he initially petitioned to be released on compassionate grounds because he was going to die any day. Uh, he died in his nursing home in Barnet, North London. Oddly enough, this death coincided with uh, the release date of a new TV movie on the BBC about him. Uh, he died about two hours before it aired. So unfortunately, never he never got to see it. Um, had a public funeral... There was a fair amount of public support. A lot of people mourned Ronnie Biggs just because of what a wild life and, you know, kind of wild and kind of libertine experience he led. He became something of a counterculture figure, um, despite the fact that his main claim to fame was barely contributing to the great train robbery. <laughs> so that's the life and life and life and life and more life and then death of Ronnie Biggs. Um. My big question for the two of you. If you had to flee the country because of some atrocity you'd committed and start a new life, it, it was hard to find a big question, but I think this is interesting. What country and job would you least like to land in when you get your new new uh, new identity? You got somebody that says, hey, I can set you up with an identity, but it's got to be here and you have to do this. What do you not want that to be? I am going my 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 last you know my last option here the one at the bottom of the list. I'm going to move to Greenland and uh, take up work selling patio furniture. Meager sales. I am going to be shipped off to Siberia, where I will be on the less acclaimed Russian ice road truckers. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Because that one is possible, but it just sounds like shit. Yeah. Like, none of it is fun, and it's, it, you don't even get the fame afterwards for it. Every truck's a Yugo. <laughs> yeah, that would not be good. That would really... Yeah, that would be... Uh, God, I don't know. I I think for me, I would like to... And it's not because I have anything against this country, but it's more the, you know, what what's going to happen with my career i don't want to land in switzerland and become a world famous lederhosen model because first of all it's going to blow my cover because they're going to recognize me immediately they're like i know those thighs yeah that's the guy that did what the fuck ever <laughs> and also no one needs to see me in leather shorts i mean i, I, I want to do that to everybody i now want to see you in lederhosen actually well you stitch a couple pairs together and uh, maybe I'll try them on one of these days. But for now, you're, you're just you're just going to have to watch it in your imagination. All right. Well, uh, thanks, everybody, for your answers. And um, and so I am up next this week and my guy this week, um, a fellow by the name of Fife Symington. And if you hear that what? name and you already think, wow, this guy sounds like a real asshole. You're correct. Fife? Fife Symington. Um, 
I mentioned before that a, a, a subtopic I want to cover a little more is bad mayors. This guy isn't quite that, but spiritually he's something similar. He was a bad governor. <laughs> um, okay. He was born. We've done that. So if you think Fife Symington is a dickish name, his full name, John Fife Symington III, perhaps even oh. worse. Um, and again, named after you, their ancestors. Jesus Christ. Well, again, if you hear that and think this guy must come from a rich white family, again, you are correct. Um, <laughs> he was a great grandson of wealthy steel magnate Henry Frick, a guy with a pretty rotten history of his own, um, including violent oppositions to early union movements in the U.S. And um, his elite hunting club built a dam in South Dakota that would later cause a massive flood. Um, Whoops. Fife's father, uh, John Fife Symington II, um, he was a World War I fighter pilot who, um, after the military, got involved in politics. He had unsuccessfully run for Congress in Maryland three uh, times in a row, each one unsuccessful. Um, worked for Barry Goldwater's presidential campaign, um, which, which also <laughs> was a miserable failure. Um, he's got a bit of a reverse Midas touch for politics, it would seem. Um it's but amazing like that Madison after, Cawthorn before Madison Cawthorn. Yeah, it's amazing that you can fail for office three times, and then somebody goes, "But I want you running my campaign now." But he did butter up Barry Goldwater quite a bit, because um, when Barry Goldwater became, um, um, you know, involved in Nixon's administration, um, I think he may have been the VP before Spiro Agnew. Maybe not. I don't remember. But. Um, Basically, uh, his connection to Goldwater got him um, an appointment as the ambassador to Trinidad and Tobago, which seems like a sweet gig. Like, you know, not not an ambassadorship where you're going to be asked to do a whole lot. It's in the Caribbean. Um, but he uh, didn't like it very much. He wanted to go be somewhere in Europe. So, so I'm his name is Fife. So I'm just picturing him as Barney Fife now. <laughs> Just walking into the Trinidad embassy like, all right, all right, all right. <laughs> Wait, where where can someone tell me about the molasses sales? Um, so Nixon and his attorney brokered a deal where uh, John Symington II would get appointed ambassador to either Spain or Pol- Portugal in Nixon's second term in exchange for a cool $100,000 contribution to Nixon's re-election fund. This deal... He's- uh, got exposed during the Watergate scandal. Uh, Symington never got his appointment to Spain or Portugal, and Nixon's attorney went to prison. Uh, so that was the kind of role model that Fife grew up around. Um, also, Fife's cousin, Stuart Symington, was a senator uh, from right here in Missouri. Stuart was best known for making a big stink when the Kansas City A's moved out to Oakland. He threatened to pull the MLB's antitrust exemption and so, in turn, uh, the league shut him up by encouraging the formation of the Kansas City Royals. And I compare that, you know, threatening to pull the MLB's antitrust exemption and getting the Royals in return. It's like that American Dad bit where she came back from the grocery store and told Roger, um, it was the craziest thing. I fell and hurt myself, and I, I threatened to sue, and so they gave me steaks! And Roger's like, yeah, Franny, there's no way that... There's no way that a lawsuit would be more lucrative than two cheap supermarket steaks. <laughs> And that's what the Kansas City Royals are. Two cheap supermarket stakes. So Fife was... After they trade, Honestly, after they traded Benintendi, I think they're more like one and a half cheap supermarket yep. stakes at this point. So Fife himself, he was born in New York City. Uh, he spent part of his youth there and part of his youth in Connecticut. 
He was then sent to an elite private school in Baltimore, would later graduate from Harvard with a degree in Dutch art history. You know, the sort of upbringing that every... Sorry, what? Dutch art history. The, the kind of upbringing that every useless, rich, white East Coast kid lives. I fucking Dutch hate this guy already. Like, I, 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 didn't even know the, I didn't even know the Dutch had art. <laughs> I thought it was just wooden shoes. It, it's, it's art, but you, you can't read it because there's too many letters covering up what the actual print is. Um, he joined the Air Force in 1967, earned the rank of captain, and served in Vietnam. He was awarded That's Captain Five to you. He was awarded the Bronze Star. He, he flew a plane with only one uh, with only one missile in it. He was awarded the Bronze Star for meritorious service in 1971. Was honorably discharged. He had been stationed in Arizona and stuck around there after his military career ended, getting involved in a real estate business at a time when Phoenix was really rapidly developing. Um, and also, I'll go ahead and give a shout out to whoever from Arizona has been listening to the show recently. Um, could be a, actually a lot of a lot of people. We I, we randomly know a lot of people out in Arizona. So there's so, two people that I could guess. We have friends. Cody and I yeah. both have several cousins yeah. who live out there. So whoever it is, thank you. Um, yeah. So he went into real estate next. He is just checking all the douchebag boxes right now. <laughs> yeah. Hold that thought. Um, oh, we, no. we do return to that point. Yeah. I, I figured. Yeah. Um, he was uh, appointed to the board of directors of Southwest Savings and Loan Association in 1983, a fact which would, for the first time, bring him under investigation as the government found some of the loans that his real estate company uh, was able to obtain from Southwest Savings and Loan rather suspicious. Um, but, no yeah, I bet. but no consequences came from this. So Fife is a rich, well-connected white guy who went to Harvard, served in the military, then ran a shady real estate empire. In other words, it was inevitable that he would eventually enter politics. Yeah, that, that's the only I, way you can get sleazier other than yeah. like yeah. becoming a full-time criminal of the, the darker sort. Yeah, I was waiting for that last ball to drop. Like, that was inevitable. And I'll add, it's a good thing that he had all these things going for him. Because preparing for this, I watched some interviews and footage of Fife Symington. He is just an absolute black hole of charisma. There's there's oh, no. not a fucking interesting thing about it. He, he looks very similar to NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell and is even more boring. He, ha he has the, the charisma of a fucking, like, a paper towel. There's just nothing like, there. Nondescript white guy. Ugh. Um, I mean, what else do you expect from somebody who majors in Dutch art history? Yeah. So in 1990, Fife officially enters politics, running for governor of Arizona against then-Phoenix Mayor Terry Goddard. Fife ran as a Republican. Uh, his platform was really just bog-standard conservative fiscal policy. He didn't wade much into social issues at all. He accused Terry Goddard of being a tax-and-spend liberal Democrat. So there you go, just the classic... Yeah. Fiscal yeah. conservative. That's lines. your touchstone. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I think he actually called him a Dukakis Democrat, which wasn't very nice. But um, you take that <clears throat> back, you son of a bitch. We'll so, run you over this fucking tank. So Fife barely won, and he took over as governor of Arizona in 1991. He was reelected in 1994, which was considered a major upset after a fairly unimpressive first term. Most of his achievements, if you want to call them that, were, again, just bog-standard conservative fiscal policy. 
He significantly slashed income tax. In fact, he later stated had he stuck around longer in office, he was going to try and do away with it in Arizona entirely. Um, he brought the charter school system to Arizona, which if you don't know, charter schools are private schools that um, the government funds. In other words, uh, bullshit. <laughs> and uh, just another thing, yeah. just a, another another tactic to uh, gut public schooling. So I guess in yeah. fairness, that is a bit of an intersection of fiscal and social policy. In 1995, Fife faced a big challenge when the federal government shut down for a few months over disputes between President Bill Clinton and the Republican-majority Congress. The problem was, Arizona happens to have a pretty important space operated by the federal government, the Grand Canyon, oh, yeah. part of our national park system, and a key source of tourist revenue for the state. Like all other federal facilities, the Grand Canyon closed to the public when the shutdown began. Fife's response Close for cleaning. Fife's Fife's <laughs> open again in three years. His response was essentially to make it a big publicity stunt for himself. He brought the press out to the entrance of the Grand Canyon um, and had this big photo op where he shook the gates of the Grand Canyon grounds, demanding that they open. He also mobilized the Arizona National Guard and readied them to open the park by force if need be. I wish those gates had just swung open while he was shaking them and he'd just fallen flat on his face. I, or into just, the canyon, preferably. Yeah. I'm just imagining the Eric Andre let me in yeah. bit. <laughs> um, he was able to leverage this into an arrangement where they allowed the park to stay open and the federal government later would reimburse him for it. So, if all that rings similar to grandstanding from the last couple years about um, reopening things, then um, you know I, I certainly see where you're coming from on that. But it seems like everything's coming up Fife. That is, until these rascals in the federal government and the New York Times started sniffing around his real estate business practices. Those sons of bitches telling people the stuff I did. Oh, there they look where I left evidence. The specifics are pretty dull, basic white-collar criminal dealings, but the long and short of it is, on June 26, 1996... Fife was indicted on 21 counts of extortion, making false financial Damn. statements and bank fraud. So obviously this I'm was just, not, this was not good. I'm just <laughs> imagining him shaking one of his little white collar cronies going, tell me they don't know about Esplanade. Tell me they don't know nothing about the Esplanade project. It's our second Sopranos reference. He stayed in office during the proceedings of the case, but not only was there uh, the future issue of damage to his reputation or possible prison time, but the law in Arizona was that convicted felons can't hold office. So if he was convicted on any of the charges, no matter what he got out of it, he would he would have to lead the governorship. So the trial began in 1997. But that was not the only big story in Arizona that year. On March 13th, 1997, came the event known as the Phoenix Lights. At about 6.55 p.m., a few calls begin coming into authorities from Henderson, Nevada, that they'd seen a large V-shaped object in the sky with six distinct lights. As it got darker, more calls came in from Prescott Valley, reporting to see this formation of lights passing overhead. The callers couldn't see exactly what, if anything, they were attached to, but believed it to be one solid object because it blocked out the stars behind it. Not long after, the lights reached the Phoenix metro area, and the calls began flooding in. It was fully dark, uh, it was about 8.30pm, 
and a large city like that, they have a lot of light pollution, so the star is not visible, so they couldn't quite see what was behind it. But numerous reports were coming in of people witnessing this strange triangular formation of lights passing silently overhead. And that was the emphasis. Like, what, you know, it, it, it has about the size and shape of, you know, you know, some kind of aircraft, but we've never seen it in this formation, and it's just absolutely dead silent. People were seeing them to such a degree that it couldn't be ignored, and news stations began reporting on it live. It's at this point where our hero, Fife Symington, enters the picture. Fife heard about it after it had already begun. He was listening to the news on the radio at home with his wife. He heard about this, thought it sounded interesting. God, what a boring piece. Yeah, (laughs) I know. (laughs) Wife listening to the news on the radio. God. Yeah, you are a human jar of mayonnaise. He he is an absolute tool. Yes. Yeah. Just to reiterate, this is in 1996. Seven, actually, even worse. He, He should be watching Friends like the rest of the fucking nation. Jesus. He is the kind of guy who thinks that deviled eggs are too spicy. (laughs) So he hears this report, um, thinks it's interesting, decides to get in his car and drive to a nearby peak uh, to see if he can see what's going on. There are a bunch of other people there um, waiting as well. Nothing at first, but suddenly the delta shape of lights appeared. Fife describes its appearance as otherworldly and totally silent. It moved in a very unfamiliar way to him and then disappeared suddenly. So I'll, I'll speak briefly on UFOs generally. Um, I, I'm gonna, I'm, I'll get more into my particular thoughts later. I, I've alluded to it before. I don't happen to believe that we've been visited by extraterrestrials. But first of all, I have more affection for UFO guys than other types of <laughs> like conspiracy or paranormal beliefs. Because like, there, there was a quote by a journalist named Leslie Keene who covers this kind of thing that I, that I kind of liked. Like, UFO has become kind of a loaded term. It doesn't inherently mean extraterrestrials. It doesn't inherently mean anything. It just means sighting of things in the sky that there's not been a, a proper explanation for. And, I mean, a lot of them can be explained away by natural phenomenon or, or, or just ordinary things. But there have been plenty that genuinely, you know, we don't know the answer to. Um, you know, I don't believe that it's extraterrestrials, but it's kind of interesting that, you know, people see things and we don't get explanations for them. Um, whatever this was, people were really bothered by it. I mean, even if they didn't think that it was space aliens, like here's some big thing passing over the city I live in. And I kind of want to know what, what it was that I just saw. Yeah. I mean, it could be like, frankly, a lot of the time it's us government, Air, like experimental aircraft yeah, yeah. but <laughs> if the government isn't like panic on this scale i think the u.s government even in trying to protect their secrets probably would have been like you don't need to freak out this is just something we're doing it's yeah. just yeah but it could just as easily have been an aircraft from a different country yeah and yes. that was concerning and, to a lot of people as well yeah. and that's yeah. th- th- that's part of why i have more affection for ufo guys because, like, one, like, that realm of conspiracy theory very rarely gets, like, harmful. But yeah. also, like, they are, there is something to what they're saying in that these stories intersect with, like, the seediest elements of the government. You know, yeah. you know, defense, 
intelligence, military, stuff like that. So any place civilians are not allowed to ever lay eyes on. Yeah. Yeah. So they're they're hitting on something real, which is that the government does a lot of shit kind of just right out in the open that's really shady and won't tell us what it is um, out of, out of self-interest. Um, so another another elected official who took an interest was um, uh, a city councilwoman by the name of Frances Emma Barwood. She'd been approached by a journalist um, before a city council meeting. Frances- Good. Frances Emma Barwood sounds like Mrs. Doubtfire's sister. Like, that's just the picture I get of how, how this person must look. Well, Ms. Barwood was um, approached by a journalist uh, before a city council meeting and said, like, can you maybe ask about this? Because there's a lot of people talking about this thing that they all saw. And so she did ask at the council meeting and the other members of the council looked at her like she had two heads and treated her like a complete uh, boob for even bringing this up. Which She only... asked about it at the council meeting and two men in black suits immediately <laughs> shot her in the head. <laughs> So as for Fife, at first he just kind of wanted to stay away from the topic. He didn't go public with the fact that he had he had seen the lights himself. The way he looked at it, he was already mired in scandal. I mean, he he just didn't want to touch this. He had enough going on. Um, but this eventually becomes national news. I mean, hundreds, thousands of people um, were coming forward and saying, like, yeah, I, I saw this overhead, and I don't know what exactly I was looking at. So with all this public uncertainty... The pressure mounts on Fife, and he does decide to look into it. Um, a couple months after the events, he holds a press conference announcing um, an inquiry would be made through the Department of Public Safety. Behind the scenes, he reached out to the Air Force. The story that he got was that these were uh, Warthog A-10 planes doing a flare exercise. Well, the issue was Fife, if you recall, is a pilot and a military pilot. He knows what military aircraft is. He know what flares are, um, or he knows what flares are, and he knew that what he saw was not, you know, the motions, the appearance, the timing was not consistent with a flare exercise. A much more important elected official in Arizona, John McCain, also comes under pressure to look for answers. Um, so here's the thing: the fact that the government bothered to lie to them tells me that they are definitely <laughs> responsible for this somehow. Yeah. We'll tell you something that sounds scary when secretly it's something much, much worse that you can't comprehend. Yeah, they they would have just been like, uh, we don't know, no, no comment yeah. at this time because was, they wouldn't have had anything to hide. But it was simply a plane, young boy. Now go off and tell your father to not go out tomorrow night. Definitely nothing to see tomorrow night either. So John McCain, he contacted the Air Force as well. And John McCain, obviously a rather important politician with a ton of pull. He gets absolutely stonewalled. So McCain and Fife are talking to each other about it privately. I mean, both took it seriously. They wanted to know what what had happened. You know, they weren't thinking extraterrestrial, but they were, I mean, they wanted to know what this was. You know, it it, it could be a threat to public safety. Fife talks. It's probably just some dumb Top Gun, like, wrench jockey who got drunk and decided to take the experimental airplane out for a spin one night. It's Tom Cruise filming a new movie, but he has to be on the top of like a phantom jet while he's doing it. So five talks. Some days I wish they'd try that. Five talks to the Air Force again. Um, they claim they looked into it further and they didn't find anything unusual. Um, meanwhile, Francis Barwood is investigating it independently. She claims that she interviewed over 700 people. That's a lot. Um, 
so Fife is meeting with James Hyler, his chief of staff, um, and they're they're noticing with the media coverage because like Hyler is kind of this classic cold, calculating Politico type. Um, they're watching the media, and the thing is with media coverage is they're always going to take the most salacious, scandalous framing, and where they took it with is that not that people were concerned about what they had seen, but they painted it out to be that everyone thinks they saw a space alien craft. Um, so Hyler and Symington were noticing this. They also, they understood that their, their state government investigation, they weren't going to get any further. They already gotten whatever explanation they gave would be unsatisfactory. I mean, I, I don't know what they were expecting the government to say during these inquiries. Like, Oh yeah, uh, yeah. There was definitely an alien craft that landed here the other night. Uh, a small man in a green helmet popped out, uh, asking for an Illudium Q thirty six explosive space modulator. Um, also, note uh, Fife and Hyler, They weren't working with Francis Barwood. In fact, they they brushed aside her work later, saying, "I think quote I don't know where she would have the wherewithal to interview seven hundred people," which is kind of not nice. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. The media ridicule of the topic increased further and further, mainly zeroing in on Barwood, the work she was doing, and on these crazy Phoenix residents who think they're being invaded by little green men. So here's how Fife's looking at this. He's this is this is happening in the middle of his trial. I should add, like, th- like the trial is ongoing, and he's dealing with that at the same time dealing with this. So he's in the midst of a trial for corruption. We have this big, mysterious, salacious story going on. Lots of people looking for answers. There is a genuine investigation going on behind the scenes that is just going absolutely nowhere. And the media is is circling this like sharks. So what's he going to do? One day, Fife calls an emergency press conference at the state capitol, which is no small thing. An emergency press conference from the governor is usually some kind kind of threat to public safety, like a big deal. Yeah. He alerts the media that the Department of Public Safety has uncovered startling new evidence. This investigation, which, in fact, was totally real. He holds this this totally, you know, nothing unusual seeming looking press conference. He's uh, standing at the podium in front of a blue black blue backdrop. The flags are behind him. Flag for the United States, flag for the state of Arizona. Two officers standing by. Five comes to the podium. He says that the investigation of DFS is already getting results. He says, quote, it's a serious offense for anyone, human, space alien, or otherwise, to engage in mysterious activities in our nighttime skies. And people at home, they're watching this intently, hoping the government finally is about to give them an answer to what they'd seen. What we then see, he orders someone off screen to come in, so that, quote, we may all look at the guilty party. Two men in suits and sunglasses escort into the room what is very obviously a man in a space alien costume. No. With a rubber gray head, big rubber hands with long fingers, a shiny silver jumpsuit, and handcuffs. No. At the side of it, we get a smattering of confused chuckles as he's escorted up to the podium. Five says, don't get him too close to me, please. Then 
He turns to the press and delivers the punchline. Which line. was probably his feeling on uh, all aliens, uh, <laughs> extraterrestrial and not. Ew. He turns to the press and he delivers the punchline. This just goes to show that you guys are entirely too serious. A decent laugh and applause from the press. Fife removes the fake alien head to reveal his chief of staff, James Hyler, who is clearly having a fucking ball and proceeds to mess with Fife by touching Fife's face with his weird alien fingers. So, so they called an emergency press conference for this for horse shit that was this bad. Well, and, and I should add, this was this happened during a recess of his trial for corruption. Like, literally, there's just a break from the trial, and he did this. Uh, Fife pulled off his big prank. He had moderately amused the press. And I'll add, maybe it could have been a little better if he didn't have just the worst delivery of all time. Again, the guy <laughs> had no charisma. He could not have pulled this off if he tried. As for Frances Barwood, she was absolutely crushed. She knew that all the work she'd put in trying to figure this story out had been in vain. The story was dead. There would be no serious inquiry from here on out. It also greatly insulted many Phoenix residents who felt that they they just wanted an answer and they were being mocked, which they were. So yeah, absolutely. You know this thing I was just investigating really hard a while ago. You guys are stupid for caring yeah. about it. Okay, bye. Just wanted to tell you that. I'm surprised that the alien didn't just, like, flip off the press at the same time. Like, oh, I've got weapons, whoa! And he's just, like, shoving his dick at the press and just being a total asshole about it. Just chugging Reese's Pieces, just being as obvious with it as he possibly can. I definitely recommend everyone to, to Google this and, and take a look at this. Just the, It's so surreal to see. Yeah. The closest I can pair the alien suit was to um, whichever of the scary movies was, was parodying Signs. You know, the aliens oh from that. God. Very similar to Three, that. Three, yeah. Uh-huh. Now, the conspiracy-minded out there immediately assumed that this had to be some sort of quid pro quo to bury the story in exchange for dropping the charges against him. Clearly, that wasn't the case, though, as not long after, at the conclusion of the trial, he was convicted on several of the counts that, that, that he was charged <laughs> with. In accordance with Arizona law, Fife resigned immediately. But this was not the end of this, though. On appeal, the Ninth Circuit found that the trial court had erred by improperly dismissing a juror. They vacated the conviction and sent the case back down for a new trial. That trial never happened. Because on January 20th, 2001, on his last day in office, Fife was pardoned by President Bill Clinton. Now again, UFO enthusiast ears may perk up at that. I mean, why would Bill Clinton go out on a limb like this for, for this corrupt doofus, Fife Symington? Well, the answer is a lot simpler than a conspiracy. The first, it's, it's a tradition that on their last day in office, U.S. presidents will issue a number of pardons, sentence commutations, clemency, etc. The reasons are always all over the place. There's not one rhyme or reason. I actually looked at all of them issued by Bill Clinton on his last day. Mostly either white-collar crimes or drug offenses. There was one really interesting one. Um, Susan Rosenberg, who had been a member of the all-female militant communist group, uh, the May 19th Communist Organization, an offshoot of the Weather Underground. Um, Susan had been sentenced for possessing a large cache of explosives. She was also suspected but never charged in assisting with the prison break of Asada Shakur, who had quite likely been railroaded for a, a murder charge of a police officer. 
maybe the coolest thing Bill Clinton did when he was in office. It was on his last day. Um, yeah, and that includes the saxophone thing. Yeah. So this is all to say um, Bill Clinton commuted Susan Rosenberg's sentence and she was released on the same day that, that fucking Fife Symington got thrown a bone. Uh, just goes to I, show. I that... was really hoping this this whole thing would end with uh, on the last day of the trial before they uh, set the jury to deliberate. Fife's lawyer saying, "We have uh, some shocking new evidence uh, being relayed to us by a surprise character witness, and it's just the guy in the alien suit yeah, comes think, back in." Yeah. Um. So this just goes to show. I mean, there's no one ideological thread here. Um. But there was a reason why Clinton helped out Fife. That reason? In their youth, Fife Symington had saved Bill Clinton from drowning while vacationing in Connecticut. So, sorry to, sorry to disappoint the UFO community, this was not evidence of an insidious conspiracy. Rather, it was two rich jagoffs um, being supposedly on opposite sides, but helping each other out because they've actually been longtime buddies. The kind of shit that happens yeah, that's, every day. That's a, another shitty thing Fife Symington did. <laughs> Saving Bill Clinton. <laughs> It was no less gross, but a lot more boring. Yep. So Fife's pivot post-politics was actually going back to school to become a chef. Apparently he makes a very nice tiramisu. Uh, being a businessman at heart, and I know businessman at heart is an oxymoron in and of itself, um, he used this new training to open the Arizona Culinary Institute. He and a friend, they also opened a restaurant in Scottsdale called Franco's Italian Cafe in 2003. I looked up. From the old Italian Symington family. Well, his friend was Franco, who is Italian, in fairness. But, uh, but I looked it up. Franco's Italian Cafe is still in operation today and has very good Yelp reviews. Damn. He flirted with re-entering politics a bunch of times, but always thinks better of it and never does. 2007. To announce my new running yeah. mate. The, it's the alien again. It's the alien. Or yeah. like by this point, everyone just says like the oh yeah, like the, the polite kind of. Oh, this joke again. Oh, this wasn't funny twenty years ago. That's the waiter at, at Franco's Italian Cafe. Is the alien? The waiter just hears dumb space jokes. I'm like, wow, it's it's really spacious in here, isn't it? And he's like, yeah. What the fuck do you want to order, man? <laughs> So, uh, 2007, Fife finally went public with the fact that he was a witness to the Phoenix Lights. He's done numerous interviews, op-eds, and panels in that time since. One of them was for a four-part Showtime docu-series called UFO, produced by J.J. Abrams. Currently on Hulu, so I watched it, um, and it served as one of my sources here. That's where I got to watch the actual press conference. Um, Fife's story is mostly held, which is that as a pilot with his expertise of aircraft, he was never satisfied by the Air Force's answer here. But that moreover, he doesn't have his own explanation. He just doesn't know what it was. Um, he also seemed uh, a bit embarrassed about the infamous press conference, which, in fairness, he yeah, really... I fucking would be. Yeah, he really should be. <laughs> um, like, merits of the Phoenix Lights case aside, I mean, holding a prank press conference with a guy in an alien costume in the middle of your corruption trial is just... You can't be doing yeah. that. <laughs> Duh. Yeah, I'm really embarrassed about the time I shit my pants in public that one time. Yeah, of course you are. It uh, That's how that goes. It also hasn't smoothed things over much with the UFO community, and they have a point. Because, again, merits of the Phoenix Lights case aside, their point is, like, 
fucker, you were literally the governor of the state this happened in when it happened, and you saw it yourself. The time for you to be cavalier about this was back then, which I'd say is a point well taken. To this day, the true story behind the Phoenix Lights remains unknown. We'll probably never get a straight answer. Um, And my broad take on UFOs, in in that docuseries, there's some journalist who was quoted as, as saying, like, you know, 95% 95% of it is total bullshit, but that other 5% is pretty interesting. I mean, the vast majority of these have simple explanations, but the ones where we don't have answers, it is interesting to think about um, what it could be. I mean, you know, I, like, I don't know. I don't think we've been visited by extraterrestrials. It's possible, I guess, but when you consider all the variables involved, I mean, the odds just seem astronomically low. Um but, I mean, there is something to the fact that the government is so shady about these sightings. And that's really because it's wrapped up in military, defense, and the intelligence community. Areas that take it upon themselves to feed the public bullshit. And I'd cite as an example of that episode three of this docuseries, which focuses on whether some of it is people being worked. Um, there is one particular well-known ufologist who... Um, a, a retired CIA CIA agent came out later and said, like, yeah, he took some photos of um, some like shady stuff that we were doing, and I didn't, I wasn't the first one to tell him that maybe it was space aliens, but I kind of pushed him in that direction because I knew he was wrong. So, you know, <laughs> in fact, there's one journalist gets interviewed that thinks that whatever is going on here, the suggestion that it's extraterrestrial beings has been an op the entire time because it steers people into just bullshit rather than the truth. So who's to say? Every few years, it seems the feds, they drop a new round of previously classified info about UFOs that believers treat as some kind of smoking gun. I mean, the problem is that these are, again, professional bullshitters we're dealing with. They do everything for a reason. There's no reason to trust any of them on anything. And I throw out, finally, the possibility of an explanation, maybe the scariest of all, which is that with some of these sightings, Maybe they don't know what it is either. You know, maybe we're being invaded, not necessarily by space aliens. Maybe it's by some other country. Maybe it's by some other operation. Maybe they have no answer, and they like people to think that it's the most ridiculous explanation possible because that is a lot less scary to people than the reality. So anyway, that's just kind of food for thought. Kind of an interesting topic, or an interesting subtopic for a decidedly not interesting man, Fife Symington, my big question for the two of you, what is your all-time favorite press conference moment? So, uh, for my money, nothing tops Allen Iverson. Uh, we talking about practice. That's a good one. That's an, all, that's an all-timer for yeah. me. Uh, just, just completely and arrogantly blowing off something that is absolutely part of your job to do. Like, I have worked with people like that before. It is amazing to watch these people in action, just how little self-awareness they have. I'm going to go... So when you say press conference, and like I think of like it going poorly or badly, uh, my mind immediately jumps to 2008, Baghdad, George W. Bush at the podium, mm-hmm. and I made him <laughs> throwing a shoe at President George W. Bush. That was also yeah. my answer. Um, yes. <laughs> I figured that'd probably oh, come up, but... Um, although, uh, I'm a man, I'm 40 is, is pretty close Ooh. to my Gundy one. I, yes. A close second yes. for me was Howard Dean's scream. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, also in my running, it's not necessarily a press conference, but it is a uh, uh, mid-game football interview 
Uh, and I can't remember which exact coach it was, but Notre Dame's coach um, talking about his team, how his team was doing, and he goes, uh, I'm a firm believer in execution, and uh, after tonight, I think our whole team should be executed. <laughs> yeah, a much less charming John McKay. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> can we... Can we go around the horn and all do um, our best impersonation of the Howard Dean scream? Can we do that real quick? I'll go first. Yeah, we can give it a shot. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> I didn't pick that up. I wonder if... I know you're Michael I... picked that up, but it definitely peaked on our end or clipped out. Freddie was very uh... scared by that. I'll try it again. <clears throat> <clears throat> oh, that's perfect. Yeah. Yeah, not bad. Yeah, Cody? Right, okay. Yeah, that's good. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like a cow giving birth. (laughs) Well, very good. Thank you. Thank you to the answers from both of you. And uh, that means we are two topics down. And that also means that uh, uh, we now turn to Jack John for our third and final topic. Jack John, who is now's a good time to turn the podcast off. (laughs) Jack John, who's Uh, who's your guy this week? Uh, before I say who my guy is this week, I do want to do um, a little bit of, of background. Um, and I just want to say, first and foremost, uh, this is a story that combines much of what I love about this podcast. Um, it covers World War II, an unlikely hero, and simply put, just shenanigans. Thank you. Yeah, uh, that's kind of our that's, that's kind of our thing. Yeah. That is our wheelhouse for sure. And and to go a little bit deeper into the background, I need to tell you the people who found my guy. Uh, so basically all this happens because um, the Nazis invade Russia so uh, in 1941 so we can all again tip our cap into the uh, ever-growing trend of me covering Nazis are stupid and they allowed this to happen uh, topics that I end up covering oh, yeah. although really the Nazis won't come into play too much uh, just for the fact that they did Operation Barbosa, which means that the Russians basically had other shit to worry about, so they ended up releasing some of their uh, POWs and prisoners in Siberia, which uh, a group of Polish soldiers were a part of that group. Now, this would be very crucial in the timeline for my guy. Now, there was some wording you used that I found kind of interesting. You said that found your guy. Did I hear that right? Correct. I find that wording interesting. Yeah. I'm wondering (laughs) if he was, like, frozen in a block of ice or something. I'm dying to find out why you said it that way. <clears throat> so uh, the POWs were, um, because of the invasion in 1941, basically, Russia was like, all right, we need to worry about some other shit. Let's just get rid of some people out of Siberia. So sometime, so sometime after this, April 8th, 1942, a group of these Polish POWs are traveling by train through the uh, Iran mountains. Uh, they're headed um, through this way to help the Allied powers eventually um, but during uh, the stopover in Iran, the Polish soldiers find something very interesting. They were trading resources and food with a small Kurdish boy, and the soldiers noticed that the boy's bag was moving and inquired what might be inside. The soldiers were shocked to find my guy in that bag. A small brown bear cub. Oh, that's <laughs> adorable. The boy claimed that the bear's uh, mother had been killed by hunters and he was taking care of it. The Polish soldiers then gathered all of their sources together and traded the boy for his cub. According <laughs> they, to legend, they gave him the everything string... they had for the cub. 
According to legend, this trade consisted of one chocolate bar, a Swiss army knife, corned beef, and other miscellaneous canned goods. Well, now we're going to feed the fucking bear. <laughs> it shouldn't have gotten rid of the corned beef. Bear was probably yeah, fucking yeah. pissed. Oh, uh, shit. Well, we got to draw straws to see who the bear gets to eat today. Soldiers then, with their newly acquired brown bear, decided for a name, Wojtek, meaning warrior to whom combat brings joy. It's a D&D I don't know ass if name. I want to have a bear named that <laughs> sleeping like feet away from me. Now, so, that sounds like a Cody D and D character. Yeah, like a, I, I, I love bears, but from a distance. Yeah. Your your bugbear's persona was one hundred percent Voitech at some point <laughs> in his life. Uh, Voitech's adolescent years could best be described as adorable. Uh, the soldiers fashioned old vodka bottles into baby bottles, feeding the little cub condensed milk and various sugary snacks they could find, much like fruit, marmalade, honey, and of course the occasional beer. Well, of course. Oh, yeah. Hell yeah. Bears gotta let loose sometimes. Yeah. <clears throat> Wojtek would wrestle with the soldiers, play tug-of-war, sleep in their tents, and even learn a few tricks. Wojtek would salute on command when prompted with fresh fruit, and would even fetch, although this may have been an unintended trick. You see, during the time away, the soldiers would still practice and try to stay combat-ready. So they would do what would be considered grenade prenat. They would do what would be considered grenade practice, where the Polish soldiers would throw oranges to simulate actively throwing a grenade. Wojtek, however, being a hungry bear, would then just chase down the orange and eat it. <laughs> oh, that does not bode well for when they actually get into combat. <laughs> he throws a grenade. <laughs> I have thought okay. about that too. It, it never came up in any of my, my research or any like listening to stories. That like that ended up ever being a problem. I don't know if like he was able just to like discern a grenade and an orange, <laughs> but that did come into my mind when I was researching. Last this. words were "Oh bother." <laughs> Some of the soldiers even uh, taught Wojtek how to haze new uh, new recruits to the unit. The soldiers taught uh, Wojtek how to pick up new soldiers by the ankles and dangle them. <laughs> <laughs> my God! Good, good, good light roughhousing with a brown bear. Dude, I just, I imagine getting sent into this unit and seeing the bear to begin with, I'm like, what the <laughs> fuck is this all about? <laughs> then I'm hanging by my ankles as a, a bear is, you know, just doing the uh, the Suge Knight. <laughs> I'm going to drop your ass. I'm like, can I go home now? I, I, I think I miss Siberia. I, I can't believe I'm saying that, but... Now, Wojtek's most noted tricks, however, are ones that may not have led to the most healthiest of lifestyles. See, while Wojtek was known for drinking bottles of beer with ease, he would also smoke cigarettes with ease. Ah. Or he at leads least... a stressful life, okay? <laughs> or at least as close to as a brown bear could. See, Wojtek would open his mouth and wait for a cigarette to be placed into his mouth and then lit. Wojtek would then take what was best described as one puff before then eating the cigarette. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it, it stands to reason. He, like, he is Russian, after all. Yeah. Are you also yeah. going to tell me that he that he likes tracksuits? He's just, he's just squatting in tracksuits next to every, like, group photo. <laughs> Wojtek would then end up being stationed with his battalion, uh, going through Syria, Iraq, Palestine, and Egypt. Uh, and... 
Well, Wojtek was best described as curious as a bear might be. He was also just outright mischievous at times. Yeah, bears can be... <laughs> bears have personality. Like, bears yeah. can be kind of dicks sometimes. Yeah, and and this is a bear that essentially has been raised by humans pretty much its, its entire life. It it thinks it's a human, probably by all, and like, accordances. Apparently like... not very responsible humans, <laughs> either, just based on some of this other shit, so... Yeah, it... You got World War II soldiers needing to let loose in what ways they can, and they just happen to have a bear around them while they're doing it. It's the perfect storm. Yeah. Uh, at a camp while in Iraq, uh, Wojtek broke away from his group and found a camp containing all women. An 80s comedy ensues as Wojtek then found a clothesline from the women's camp and stole their underwear. What a little scamp. There was. <laughs> You're telling me they didn't train him to do that? Come on. <laughs> Uh, one Christmas Eve during a traditional Polish dinner, uh, the celebration uh, included much uh, much drinking and much wine. And, of course, Wojtek and his fellow soldiers get absolutely blitzed on the wine. <laughs> the soldiers then managed to lose track of the 500-pound brown bear. Uh, when they did find him, they had eventually found that he had broken into the local military shop uh, looking for sweets. He trashed the entire place, covering the entire storefront in... Broken bottles of olive oil and flour. Oh, so okay. How much do you think he had to drink to get a bear that fucked up? A five hundred pound bear. Yeah, it's like at least two full bottles of vodka. Like I, I don't know. I did look up into the science <laughs> of how much like a bear can process alcohol. I know there's stories of like animals getting like absolutely hammered on like over fermented fruit that has yeah. like fallen from trees so like well yeah it's not something that their bodies aren't probably like used to but like probably not in levels of like a world war ii party and now yeah. i will be he's uh, a lightweight after yeah. we're done with this i was spending the rest of my evening doing something i periodically do watching youtube videos of russian guys chugging uh bottles of vodka <laughs> oh my god yeah. yes i think i've been in like discord calls with you on nights where we've just ended up watching Dudes pound a fifth of vodka and then just, like, stand there awkwardly. Yeah. Until they fall over and collapse. That's one of those things that I've always thought, okay, it must be cool to be able to do that. But after you've done it, what's your mindset like <laughs> immediately after where it hasn't hit you yet, but you know you're about to be so goddamn drunk in, like, five minutes? There was, and we can tell this story later today, I did a medical uh, alcohol study one year, uh, when I was in college here in Indy, and it, it, it the process was I was hooked up to like straight concentrated alcohol through an IV drip, and I could push a button and order as many quote-unquote drinks as I wanted. And it was one of those things where it was just like, I know that I just pressed this button seven times, and I'm going to be drunk really soon. Like, this is going to get weird. Was this conducted in a hospital or yes, like a garage yes. somewhere? Because this is sounding a little iffy to me. It was in an actual hospital, or at least that's uh, what the person running it told me. Yeah, the morgue's part of the hospital, right? Yeah. <laughs> but back, back to Wojtek. And you, you raised an interesting part about it drinking, and, and more specifically the water. Wojtek loved drinking water. Uh, the issue, though, is that for most of the time here, Wojtek is stationed in the Middle East. The yeah. water is uh, severely rationed, and there's not always enough water to go around. What would happen, though, is Wojtek would break into showers and turn on the water, draining much of the unit's supply. 
just playing and drinking in the water. <laughs> this created a situation where during certain hours, the showers had to be locked and basically shut down. One night, however, on in June in 1943, the showers were unlocked. Wojtek noticed this and was able to get into the showers. Uh, what the massive brown bear found, though, on the inside was not only the water supply that he was looking for, but also a spy hiding in the camp. Hmm. The spy had gotten in and was hiding out in the showers. Oh my god, can you imagine being... You're, you're already on edge. So you're like, oh shit, the Russians are going to catch me any minute. Then a 500-pound bear walks into the... It's like the lawyer in Jurassic Park when he <laughs> runs into the bathroom and the T-Rex tears it apart. The frightened shrieks of the spy alerted the rest of the company and was quickly taken in for questioning, <laughs> alerting the Polish soldiers of a future planned attack. This break-in to the showers saved countless lives as there was an impending attack very shortly after planned that this, this battalion was able to essentially plan for and be ready for. Okay, so if I was the MPs arresting that spy, I'd have had a little fun with this dude and talked to the bear like he's the commanding officer. Where do you want and, him, Chief? Yeah. And, and again, like, Wojtek is essentially, like, around all these soldiers, but he's he's basically just, like, a mascot and a pet. Like, he's just, they just happen to have a bear around. Mm -hmm. uh, but but Wojtek, for, for his great work, uh, is rewarded with beer, several sweet meats, and an extended shower time shortly after. Attaboy. <laughs> In 1940... Hey, as well. Yes. <laughs> Reward your employees and your doggo-like bears when they do good. Um, in 1944, Wojtek's unit is ended, uh, heading from Egypt to Naples, Italy. Uh, they're essentially uh, going to go help uh, a little bit more on front lines duties. The problem, though, is that the ship that they're going on is British-owned. And the British don't allow mascots or pets or animals or anything like the sort to go on the ship. Of course, they wouldn't allow anything fun. So this this creates a problem for the group as they have a bear that they love. So the Polish soldiers get together. the largest fatigues you have. <laughs> the Polish soldiers get together and they do the only right thing. They officially enlist Wojek into the military. They give him yeah. a paycheck, a soldier's number, and assign him the rank of private and basically tell the Brits to go fuck off. Why not? Why not? You want to argue with the bear? You go right ahead. You want to tell him to get off the ship? Um, eventually, um, uh, Wojtek and his uh, company would end up seeing a little bit of combat, and uh, they would uh, end up seeing this mostly in the form of the Battle of Monte Cassino in 1944. Uh, the biggest issue in this um, entire campaign was that the soldiers would have to carry these 100-pound crates uh, filled with weapons, ammunitions, and artillery shells, which was 100 pounds, and you're essentially having these tired soldiers carrying these. Uh, Wojtek sees this and just goes, that looks like fun, and begins carrying multiple crates behind the humans <laughs> in line. It was noted, though, that during this campaign, uh, Wojtek could sometimes uh, be caught being lazy carrying empty crates next to his soldiers <laughs> at the same time. But his great work uh, didn't go unnoticed here, uh, legitimately helping out uh, the Allied powers here, carrying uh, 
crates of ammunitions and generally being a fucking bear, uh, that he would end up getting two recognitions for this achievement. One, he would get promoted to corporal. And two, he would end up being enshrined in the 22nd uh, Company's uh, emblem, which is a bear holding a uh, anti-tank um, warhead, which would be uh, put on patches and vehicles and just displayed anywhere that the company could. You know, as nice as that is, I think Corporal's <laughs> bullshit. I think that bears <laughs> officer material, frankly. He's, he's served his time for sure. Uh, but the war eventually does end, uh, and after the war, uh, basically, Wojtek kind of hangs around a little bit, but as everyone is off, like sent off to go home, they need to find a place for uh, Wojtek. He ends up getting sent to Scotland, uh, where he's eventually transferred into the Edinburgh Zoo there in Scotland. He was assigned uh, to be in uh, an exhibit with other bears, but really didn't fit in, because yeah, Wojtek... He's he's, pretty, yeah, he's pretty much people at that point. Yeah, just Wojtek let him roam around. Didn't give him cigarettes. Yeah. <laughs> Wojtek didn't know how to be around bears, so luckily the people at the zoo like understood that and gave Wojtek his own exhibit, um, and lived relatively a peaceful life as much as you can as a bear in a zoo. Uh, it was noted though that Wojtek would perk up mostly when hearing other people speak <laughs> Polish. Or when the other, uh, when his former uh, soldiers uh, that he had served with in the Twenty Second Company would come and throw cigarettes into his pen, and Wojtek would light up then and enjoy, <laughs> and then eat the cigarettes. Reminds me a little bit. Uh, true story. Uh, U.S. Senator Lindsey Graham, when he was a kid, his parents ran like a really seedy dive bar, and he would like walk around the bar like, uh, uh, and people would like pay him change to eat cigarettes, and they called him they called him Little Stink Ball. May explain a little bit about why he grew up to be a an extremely bitter, maladjusted person. Yeah, I, I was gonna say that describes Lindsey Graham now. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and Wojtek would ultimately pass away at the age of twenty-one in nineteen sixty-three, which was in in the relative span of what a brown bear can expect to live by. I googled it. Um, Brown bears can live anywhere between 20 and 30 years, but I think the bears that are hitting 30 aren't drinking and smoking nearly. Well, yeah. I was going to say, for his, life, in the for, army. for his lifestyle, that's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, but that's, he wasn't um, here for a long time. He was here for a good time. <laughs> that is the life and military escapades of probably my favorite soldier that I've covered. Uh, Wojtek, Corporal Wojtek, if you will. Uh, I didn't send you my question ahead of time because I didn't want to tip off that this was a bear that I was covering. Yeah, uh, we did that, not know that. But with that said, my big question to you guys, knowing the lifestyle that Wojtek <laughs> lived of smoking, drinking, and essentially partying and like getting into shit cannery, um, if you got Wojtek as a cub, how long do you think you could keep it? Hmm. Hmm. It's tough where to I say. Live, because... Where I live now... <clears throat> I'm get, well, I'm not supposed to have pets at all, but a bear that big is almost like a roommate. I'm thinking um, I could probably keep him about a year or until he starts getting like bear size before the space here becomes a problem. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to say a year. I think I could keep that little guy alive for a year. Um, see, this is tough because there's an added degree of difficulty. I live in St. Louis, so... I, I really gotta be careful with him on the on the hard streets. Either he's gonna get 
I suspect one of two things is going to happen. Either he's going to get shot or he's going to become like the most ruthless gangbanger this city has ever seen. This is not a good environment for Voitech. Either that or or I, I could see him and Freddy not getting along because Freddy pretty much, you know, he pretty much covers that base already as far as like bear-like creatures yeah. living in my house. Although, so, what if they became best friends? How cool would that yeah. be? That would it was be, noted. That'd be heartwarming. It was. It was noted that like when Voitech would meet up with other like company animals like dogs, Voitech would play with the other animal like in a very friendly manner. Maybe yeah. I'll... The thing about bears is they are especially when they don't have kids. Yeah, they are pretty good nature generally speaking. They they can be dangerous just because they're so big, but they are yeah actually pretty pretty docile yeah. most of the time. The biggest danger would be the bear not knowing its own size. I think what I'm going to do with Voitech is I'm going to see if I can get him a med card and <laughs> introduce him to weed. And so then, like, I'll come home. Then he'll just be, like, a, a bad roommate, essentially. <laughs> yeah. I'll come home, and he'll be sitting in the recliner. He'll have, you know, eaten all my snacks and just be just be, just be stoned off his ass watching old He's cartoons. watching the Discovery Channel yeah. for 14 hours in a row. <laughs> like, fucking sake, Voitech. I told you to sweep up. <laughs> Covered in like Doritos dust. There's like honey all over him. He's just completely veg. There's like a loop of like carp in it, like swimming upstream on the TV. <laughs> Great answers. I think with I, with the combination of my house and my wife, I think I could keep Voitech for two years before it became an issue. Like, yeah, I think he'd like. A large dog is feasible. Like I, I've got a backyard. I could, I could take him on walks. There's some trails around here. I could pass him off for a big dog for I think two years before the heat came too heavy. You just seem to be expecting that no one in your neighborhood knows what a bear looks like, and I think that might be a slight. Like I think you might be placing a little too much confidence in that. To be fair, though, if you see somebody with a bear on the street, are you approaching them? Yes, if it's a small one. I'm going to be like, where'd you get that fucking bear, man? <laughs> if it's a cup, first thing I'm going to be like, can I pet that bear cup, please? Yeah. yeah. But like, second of all, what are you doing with a fucking bear cup? Yeah, if it's like a cute If it's a bear. large bear, no, I am going inside <laughs> yeah. is what I'm doing. Yeah. It's a cute cub, though. I've never armed robbed anyone before, but I at least have to think about it. I'm like, this yeah, opportunity yeah. is only going to come around once. Like, if you see, like, a sign out in front of the house that says, like, bear crossing, you're just like, wait, does this dude have a fucking bear inside? I don't, I don't think I'm robbing him now. <laughs> Keep shutting your toes. All right, well, uh, quite the zany episode this week, um, and hopefully you all enjoyed it as much as we did. So let's wrap this thing up. Let's go around the horn and hawk our shit. Cody, we'll start with you. Yeah, uh, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at sonofgravy42069. You can catch me uh, weekly on Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts right here on Here's a Guy. You can also find me, as often as we possibly can, over on a little Twitch channel that the three of us and our friends Pookie and Kelsey have started called Here's an Adventure. We're playing some Dungeons and Dragons. It has been entirely too long since we've gotten to do it. I cannot wait for our next session. Um, everything is really going... Um, it's been so fun so far. I, I think our group has great chemistry, and of course, Pookie does a great job putting it all together. So, uh, stoked to get to do that a little more and keep your eyes out on our socials, and we'll tell you when that's upcoming. Alrighty, how about you, Jack John? 
Oh yeah, people can find me on Twitch at Jack John Plays Games. You can find me on my other podcast, Belchcast, where uh, Pookie and I we get drunk and talk about nerd shit and review some some good craft beer along the way. And um, yeah, follow me or check us out on again. Here's an adventure. Uh, this Sunday, when uh, this episode drops, we're doing an episode this Sunday. So check that out live around, um, I don't know, 7 p.m.? Wherever you're at, 7 p.m. Just 7 p.m. <laughs> yeah, that'll go well. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Turpin for Prez. That's Turpin, the number four P-R-E-Z. Um, I am also on Heroes and Adventures, so check that out, please. Um, be seeing some announcements coming from us about when uh, start time will be. But, yes, we are... We are going live this Sunday once again. Um, so follow the podcast account. It's Here's a Guy Pod. Uh, we have a mailbox. Here's a mailbox at gmail.com. Send us whatever you like. Uh, we like it enough. We'll read it on air. So uh, to wrap this whole thing up, Cody, do you have a tagline for us? I do indeed. All righty. Well, without any further ado, um, thank you all for being here. Hope you have you here again with us next week. And to bring us home, Cody, hit us with that tagline cigarettes to your pets may sound like fun until you have to put a nicotine patch on a very irritable 600 pound bear good night everybody hi that is